Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 9. Won't Detain You Finally, the Won't Detain You was pronounced finished, and rehearsals could begin. A great crowd of supers gathered in the Fun Factory's scene dock, and all eyes were on the mammoth construction, all trying to work out whereabouts one would be seen to the best advantage. Everyone was absolutely determined to be on the ship itself. After all, who looks at the quayside when there's a ship leaving? One super near me said, chewing his lip nervously. By the time the stage manager, Mr Bryant, emerged from the office and came to address the crowd, it was like a coiled spring. Greyhounds waiting in the slips, as the saying goes. "'Morning, everyone,' Bryant said, waving a sheaf of papers above his head, and the hubbub quietened at once. "'On your marks. "'Now I'm going to want some of you on board the ship, get set, and some of you down below, so if you'd all... "'All at once there was a thunder of feet, a clack of heels, and a massive mob-handed game of musical chairs was underway.' Spotlight-crazed supers scrambled up the ladders like a marauding army assaulting a fortified town. Ladies elbowed gents aside in most unladylike fashion. The elderly were crushed underfoot, the infirm left to go hang. I was able to stake my claim to a goodish spot at a railing and look down to where the tidal wave of supers was now falling back and resolving into small pools of the thwarted, remaindered and disappointed. Bryant stood peering up at us, a long-suffering expression on his face, then nodded briskly to the technicians in charge of the huge hydraulic rams. At first, the rocking was slow and gentle, and really rather enjoyable. The supers near me grinned as though they were on a ride at a funfair. Then the rams were cranked up a notch to show the won't detain you crossing the Bay of Biscay. A chorus girl clutched a hand to her mouth, while others gripped the railings in front of them, their knuckles showing white. Finally, Bryant announced that for the climax of the piece, the won't detain you would find herself thrashing through a great storm. Oh, my good lord above, murmured the gentleman alongside me, gritting his teeth. The technicians paused a moment, malevolently, then cranked the rams up to full power. The ship bucked and dipped, and there was screaming, retching, crying and pleading yells of stop, for pity's sake, stop! The sickly-looking chorus girl could stand it no more, and threw up in a gentleman's top hat. Admirably discreet, you might think, except that she was atop the ship, and the gentleman holding the hat was way down below at ground level. All right, stop! Bryant yelled, stop! Down we came, a far more subdued bunch than had swarmed aboard the Wump Detainer like a pirate crew just a short time before. There was a pitiable moaning from all parts, with many clutching their stomachs or being helped into chairs by friends. We gave way to the principals. Sean Glenville, a small, wiry, athletic young man playing a tipsy purser, and Charles East, a twenty-stone human leviathan, who was the ship's captain. A few of us winced as East clambered aboard the won't detain you for the first time, fearing that it might not be able to cope with his bulk. He was a massive fellow who used to dine nightly on a whole leg of ham, which was a show in itself, by the way. 
The whole flimsy contrivance involving card sharps, a rich heiress and a detective in disguise was funny enough, but it was clearly going to take second place to the spectacle of the storm-tossed liner itself, especially the carefully choreographed chase-in-the-storm sequence involving passengers, us, and furniture flying through the air from side to side. As I watched, I began to understand why Mr Carnot had been so unimpressed by poor Bronte. It must have seemed a puny effect indeed, in comparison to this. At the weekend, we somehow got the great liner broken up and loaded onto carts. There were dozens of us, all the occupants of Carnot's lowest rungs, and it took several trips, but eventually we managed to get the whole contraption all the way from the fun factory up to the Paragon in Mile End, where we bolted it all back together again. It must have been a strange sight for anyone up at the crack of dawn that Sunday morning, seeing parts of an ocean liner drifting majestically over Southwark Bridge, while the barges slunk down the river below. When the time came for the dress rehearsal, I found my mark, and as I looked around I noticed that a number of gaps had appeared here and there. The sickly chorus girl was no longer with us, and neither was the man who had been next to me, murmuring entreaties to his maker. "'Hello there, Arthur Dando,' said a soft voice behind me. I turned and discovered that my new neighbour was to be little green-eyed Tilly Beckett. "'Things are looking up,' I thought to myself. Tilly was every bit as attractive as I remembered, but maybe not quite so full of beams. Indeed, she looked positively apprehensive.' "'This old thing is a real monster, isn't it?' she said, stamping her heel onto the deck. "'You know Angelina's been fired, just like that.' "'Really?' I said, not knowing who Angeline was. "'On the spot. I mean, I know she threw up into that man's hat. "'Ah, so that was Angeline. "'But dear me, they're brutal. Brutal. "'They know, you see, that they can get a hundred new chorus girls "'just by going up the corner and giving a whistle, "'so they might as well have ones that won't puke up all over the shop. "'Margaret's fired as well, and Nell, and Winnie. "'A few of the men, too, I heard. "'Anyone who looked a bit green about the gills.' She shivered and drew her shawl tighter about her shoulders. I tell you, I nearly lost it myself that last time when it was the storm, and Lord knows I can't afford to miss this go. She looked up at me and sidled a little closer along the railing. Lest you and me be a couple, like, then you can hold on to me and maybe it won't be so bad. What do you say? Are you game? Well, I was game right enough. And as she slipped her arm under mine, I found I was actually looking forward to it quite a lot. Here we go, everyone, cried Mr Bryant, and we all braced ourselves. There was a muted sort of chugga-chugga-chug from behind, but nothing much else happened. "'Cue!' Bryant shouted, and again there were faint stirrings down at the back of the stage. The won't-detainer didn't budge. We were in dry dock. Bryant skipped up onto the apron, and stagehands appeared from all corners to confer. They peered at the machines, gave them the occasional desultory tap with a mallet, scratched their chins, shook their heads. Tilly's arm clasped mine, and she rested her head on my shoulder while we waited. "'Don't worry,' she said. "'Something like this always happens. "'They'll sort it out. "'They always do.' "'The longer it went on, though, "'the less it looked like anything was being sorted out. "'We began to hear snatches of the discussion below, "'and the words, "'No good. "'Water pressure too low. "'And may have to cancel,' "'sent shivers of apprehension through the assembled company. "'Eventually Bryant came to the front of the stage "'and sent us all away. "'There was no point in everyone hanging around all day,' he said, "'and we should all be back at six o'clock. "'It didn't sound promising.' I turned to ask Tilly if she would like a walk or a cup of tea somewhere, but she was already skipping off with some friends, so I just found myself shuffling out with the rather despondent crowd. The supers milled about on the street outside the theatre, and I could hear them all muttering darkly about the jobs they could have been doing instead of this one, a likely story. If the turn was cancelled, of course, it would be a week without pay for everybody. Before long I was the only one left on the pavement there, fed up, wondering what to do with myself until six. I decided to go for a walk. That was cheap. 
As I strolled up the Mile End Road, Miss Tilly Beckett was on my mind. It's difficult to feel you've impressed a girl when you have a vivid memory of her saying, Why, you're nothing, nothing at all. Still, though, there was the memory, too, of her arm through mine, and her head on my shoulder, and the smell of her hair. But then the thought that the sketch which had brought that delicious proximity about was probably done for turned my mood dark again. I suddenly realised that I'd been walking out in the sun for some considerable while and had worked up a powerful thirst. On my way to a pub, I happened to glance in at the window of a tea shop, and who should I see but Tilly Beckett sitting there all by herself? I carried on past, being a silly, self-conscious youth with no real idea of how to talk to a girl, but after a couple of strides I took a deep breath and summoned up the nerve to go back and step inside with a determinedly casual air about me. Tilly looked up when the little bell on the door tinkled, and her face positively lit up when she recognised me. "'Oh, good, good, come and sit with me,' she said, beckoning me urgently to her table. "'Sit, sit!' I did so, and she leaned over conspiratorially to put her hand on mine, at which my heart actually did what hearts are said to do at moments such as this. It skipped a beat. "'I'm so glad to see you. I can't tell you,' she gushed. "'I've been nursing this pot for an hour and a half now. That woman started giving me filthy looks, so I had to tell her I was waiting to meet someone, and now here you are. She can't ask me to leave now, can she?' "'Ha!' Tilly shot a look of purest triumph towards the counter, behind which there sat a beetroot-faced old troll who clearly felt it was high time more money was spent in her establishment. So I ordered another pot of tea for two and some tea cakes.' By the time these dubious treats arrived, Tilly had explained that she had thought to visit a friend who lived nearby, but that friend had been out, and we moved on to fevered speculation as to whether the show would actually go ahead that evening. "'I heard a rumour that the water pressure in this part of the world is simply too feeble to operate all those hydraulic whatnots, and that there might be nothing for it but to abandon the whole week's booking, maybe more. "'So maybe the wretched won't detain you as sunk with all hands before it even embarks on its maiden voyage,' I said gloomily, and she grimaced. "'Well, I dare say we'll find out soon enough,' she said. "'Now shall I be mother?' I helped myself to a tea-cake, as she did the honours teapot-wise. "'Now then,' she said, "'I was thinking it might be fun if we were married. What do you think?' A sizable chunk of tea-cake suddenly headed down the wrong pipe. I began to splutter, and Tilly had to come round behind me to thump me on the back, whereupon the offending morsel shot out of her mouth and cannoned wetly into the little vase in the centre of our table. "'Have a sip of tea now. There we go. That better?' Mm, I said, then... Married, did you say? Yes, I was thinking it might be a lark. What do you reckon? It's a measure of how far gone I was, I suppose, that I actually started thinking about it. Well, I... I um, are you sure? I mean, we, we hardly know each other. I ventured this gingerly, feeling the point ought really to be raised, but not altogether wanting to put her off. What's that got to do with anything? Tilly demanded. Well, I stammered, perhaps we could... "'Walk out together a few times, see, see if we hit it off. "'We get along all right, don't we? "'Yes, yes, we do, I suppose, but there we are, then. "'What more do we need? "'Now, I'm thinking we'd be travelling to America "'to start a new life together, "'leaving behind everything and everyone we know. "'Whatever's up?' "'I must have looked shocked, I suppose. "'Oh, it's just America? "'Yes, just like that? "'Yes. "'Well, I was just thinking, what about the show? "'I mean, maybe it will be all right after all, "'and we'll go on for a few weeks, "'and then we can get a bit of money together "'and we'll be able to afford... "'I'm talking about the show, you chump! "'You know, we should pretend to be married for our story in the show. "'You surely didn't think I was really proposing to marry you in real life, did you? "'What sort of girl do you take me for, Arthur Dando?' <laughs> "'Of course not. I, I, I was being a character,' I blurted out. "'I felt my face flush hot, and my collar suddenly felt about three sizes too small. "'I was thinking I, I, I'd be an, a theatre entrepreneur, worrying about his latest show "'and, and whether he'll be able to afford to... Uh, 
to, you know, marry his lovely leading lady and, and, and whisk her off to America, the land of opportunity for the fresh start they both um, long for. Something like that, you see? Tilly frowned, chewing this over. Yes, that's not bad. I like that. Not bad at all. You have to have a story, I reckon, don't you? Uh, or else it's just the deadliest thing imaginable, standing around, being human scenery. And you know the audience don't need to know it, as long as we do, do they? I nodded and let out a long, slow sigh of relief that we were at last both on the same page of the script, so to speak. She carried on. So, we're leaving on the Won't Detain You, heading to America to make our fortunes. And hey, perhaps someone is trying to stop us, how about that? So we're happy, but we're also just that little bit anxious. We're eloping then, are we? Yes, yes, my father hates you, thinks you'll never amount to anything, and he wants me to marry a vicar, <laughs> with a big hook of a nose like a beak. On and on we went, embellishing this little tale, until you'd have thought the whole Won't Detain You sketch was going to be about the two of us. Our pan-faced hostess eventually made her displeasure at our dragging out a single pot of tea for the whole afternoon, too plain to be ignored, and I paid, and we made our exit. Tilly popped off to visit the friend who'd been out earlier, so I nipped into a hostelry called the Saracen's Head for a swift couple of jars, and then made my way to the theatre, feeling much better about life. Yes, things were definitely looking up. I turned into the alley, which led to the stage door, and saw a fire engine standing there. The theatre was on fire. I started to run up the alley. The firemen, three of them, was leaning on the back of their wagon, smoking cigarettes, which they'd hardly do in an emergency. I nodded to them as I squeezed past and saw that a broad hosepipe was leading from the engine into the theatre, holding the door open. Intrigued, I followed the pipe, which led up to the back of the stage, all the while becoming aware of a pumping noise getting louder and louder. I stepped out from the wings onto the apron, and there, in all its glory, was the Won't Detain You, rocking back and forth as though cresting a mighty Atlantic swell. The hydraulic rams were operating at full capacity, thanks, it turned out, to the extra water pressure supplied by the fire brigade. "'Not bad, eh?' said a voice behind me. I walked to the front of the stage, shielding my eyes against the lights, and peered down into the darkened stalls. A figure was standing there, a stocky, dapper little fellow, hands on hips, surveying his handiwork. "'Mr. Carno,' I said. He raised a quizzical eyebrow. "'I'm Arthur Dando,' I said. "'And what are you doing here, Arthur Dando?' Carno said, his tone ever so slightly mocking. "'Well, um, I'm to be on the ship,' I burbled. "'I'm a super.' "'I'm sure you are,' the boss replied, turning on his immaculately shod heel. "'I'm sure you are just as a super as can a be.' "'Well, things to do. People to sack. On we go,' he cried, giving me a little wave as he went on his way. "'Mr. Carno!' I heard myself shouting after him. He turned at the rear of the stalls and looked back at me. "'I'm Arthur Dando. We met in Cambridge. I wrote. You said to come. I came.' I stopped. The world stopped. Carno began to walk slowly back to me. "'Well, well, well,' he said. "'Well, well, 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 well. It's the young man who was eaten by the giant dinosaur, is it not?' "'That's right, sir,' I said, my heart hammering. "'I said to come.' "'And you came,' he said. "'And now you're one of my supers, is that it? "'And what have you done for me so far, Arthur Dando?' "'Well, um, nothing on stage yet,' I twittered. "'I've been here two weeks, and the whole time I've been painting that.' "'I pointed at the good old won't detain you, lurching away on the stage. "'So, tell me this, Arthur Dando,' Carno said, fixing me with a gimlet gaze. "'Why did you come, hm? "'To be a painter?' Only one thought came to me, and I blurted out, "'You said I had it!' Carno grinned. "'I did, didn't I? 
I said you had it. I recall conversation now. I don't say that often, you know, and I'll tell you another thing. When I do say it, I'm hardly ever wrong. He paused for a moment, turning something over in his head, it seemed to me. Well now, if you've got it, we can't waste you as a super, can we? Or painting scenery. That'd be nothing short of criminal. Or do you like it on very bottom wrong? No, sir, I said, hoping that was the right answer. Remember this, Arthur Dando. It's up to you. It's always up to you. No one else. It's your responsibility. You must push yourself forward. Make yourself heard. Stick your head up above the crowd. You need to get to the next rung, then climb over whoever's in front of you to get there. Push yourself forward. I put on a determined expression, which seemed appropriate, and nodded enthusiastically. Come and see me at morning. Ten sharp. We'll see what we can do with you. Thank you, Mr Carno. Call me Governor. Everyone does. He gave me a little wink, smiled, and was about to head off again, but I must have been emboldened by his words, because I said, Er, uh, Governor? What now? It's just that you have the fire engine's pump connected up to your hydraulic rams there. I have, and I've brought those lads all the way from Merryweathers of Longacre to do it. What of it? Well, last summer the fire brigade came to the college where I worked, I said, and connected up their pump to the college plumbing by mistake, and it was very powerful. Burst some of the pipes, blew one old don clean off the water closet. Carno smirked. Old Mr Kirkham, it was, who'd ended up in first court, soaked through with his trousers round his ankles, looking for his spectacles. If that pipe doesn't hold, you'll have an absolute tidal wave of water heading straight for the front rows. Carno scratched his chin. Really? I'm afraid so. For a moment, I was afraid my warning had taken the wind out of his sails, but then the governor turned and winked at me. Well, that'd be a shame, wouldn't it? <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 10. His Big Break. I will never forget the gasps of astonishment as the audience at the Paragon caught their first glimpse of the mighty won't-detainer sailing serenely across the stage. Tilly and I looked down from on high at the upturned faces and eyes wide with amazement as the brass band played and the streamers spun down out of the sky, 
The ingenuity of the folding panels was impressive enough, but once the ship reached the open sea and began its realistic rocking motion, the crowd burst into spontaneous applause. They nudged one another with glee and pointed then at the green faces of we supers hanging grimly to the rails in the throes of our all-too-realistic seasickness. They gasped and squealed at the ominous creaking and thumping from the hydraulics, and then all at once the overworked pipes succumbed to the extra pressure and burst at the seams, gushing hundreds of gallons of icy cold water across the stage and into their laps. People ran for their lives to the exits and stood dripping out on the Mile End Road to the amazement of passers-by, cursing the name of Fred Carno and shaking their fists up at the theatre building as though it was somehow to blame. Despite this utter debacle, though, the governor strode in through the double doors of the fun factory the next morning just before ten, beaming all over his face, clutching the morning's newspaper in his fist. "'See this, Alf?' he shouted up to Reeves, who was supervising some fresh scene-building up in the roof space above our heads. "'Front page!' He slapped the paper with the back of his hand and bustled towards his office, pleased as punch, nodding greetings as he went. He saw me waiting for him outside the door and tossed the paper to me without breaking his busy little stride. "'See? You were right about that water pressure then, lad. Be with you directly.' He went in, and I glanced over the report of the previous night's mayhem. The writer made it sound like an unmitigated disaster, but the item covered very nearly a quarter of the front page and gave prominent and numerous mentions of the name of the show and the ambitious and spectacular set and the outrageous cost and the name of the theatre and the name of Mr Fred Carno. While I'd been reading the paper, a couple of other fellows had come over to Carno's door. The older of the two, a tall, rangy chap, smartly turned out, with slicked-down hair, paused before knocking to indicate that the younger, a short, slightly-built youth, also in his Sunday best, should wait outside to be called. Then he marched straight in. So much for me, I thought to myself. The younger youth sat down opposite me and looked at me with a steady gaze, which I found unsettling, though I couldn't quite have said why at first. I returned his look, as if to say, What are you looking at? and before I could stop it, and without either of us saying a word, I found myself in a full-blown staring contest. I knew it, and he knew it, and I knew he knew it, and he knew I knew it. So I stared, and he stared, and he stared, and I stared, and as I did, I suddenly put my finger on what it was that was so unsettling about this youth's level gaze. It was this. His eyes, the irises, that is, were a startling deep purple. This couldn't be, could it, the same youth that... Sam Cohen, who had suffered that calamitous humiliation? The thought was enough to make me break off looking at him, and his lip curled in a slight sneer of self-satisfaction, this boy, which made me colour in embarrassment and defeat. I looked at my feet so as not to have to look at him, this purple-eyed freak boy, and so found myself tuning into the conversation in Carno's office. "'So how was America?' Carno was saying. "'It went very well, Governor. They sure seem to like us,' the tall slicker replied." "'No thought of staying out there, then?' "'Governor,' came the reply, affecting to sound indignant, hurt at the very suggestion. "'I'm your man, through and through.' "'Is that so? Is that so, indeed?' The governor sounding thoughtful. "'I'm not saying they weren't offers, mind.' "'Oh-ho! And good money, too.' "'Oh-ho, again. Better money than I'm paying you, is that what you're saying?' "'The money's not the important thing,' the slick dude claimed, unconvincingly to my eavesdropping ears, and to Carno's, too, it seemed. "'Don't give me that bunk.' The money's always the important thing, Sidney. You know it, and I know it. So is that what this little social call is about, then? You after a little pay rise? No, Governor. Because, you know, I might have something in here for you, now I come to think of it. There was the sound of a cupboard door being opened, and Sidney the Slicker protested at once. Governor, please, put the big hat away. I've come to ask you about another matter entirely. 
I learned later that the governor had a novel way of dealing with requests for more money from his players. He'd bring out an oversized hat. There were two in his cupboard, an enormous bowler, I think, in the winter, and a vast straw boater for the summer months, to demonstrate what he thought of the claimant and his swollen head. Prop sarcasm, it was, and it usually had the desired effect, I'm told. Well, then, a low thump, which may have been the governor putting his feet up on the desk. It's, it's about poor Ronnie Marston. My ears pricked up at mention of that name, my predecessor at the Bell's house. I, well, I blame myself, Governor, Sidney said, a little catch in his voice. Interesting, Garner replied with a little cough. I blame you, too. Oh, really? I see. Um, Right-o. You were the number one of a Fred Carno company, and everything that happens to that company is your responsibility. You got that? A reverent pause followed. Whatever had happened to this Ronnie Marston, whose name only ever seemed to be mentioned with the word poor preceding it? Fortunately, the perfect remedy is at hand, Sidney started off again, perking up. Oh? Yes, my brother, Charlie. He's waiting outside. He's been with Wall Pink and Casey's, and he got good notices in Sherlock Holmes with Mr Sainsbury. He's a quick study, and he'd be a perfect fit, and I was thinking that I might set him on. Exactly. I glanced up at the purple-eyed boy opposite. He was holding his breath, hanging on every word, every nuance of the conversation inside. "'And if I do, you'll pay no more mind to these other offers you've had, is that it?' Carno's voice was taking on a sarcastic and rather calculating tone. "'Governor, I never said I heard what you never said. Heard it very well. "'Anyway, I've seen your boy. He's clever enough, but he's too young. "'He only looks young, close to. With make-up and a wig, he can play anything you like.' I snorted derisively at this. The boy opposite stiffened and glared at me, a frown darkening his features, and I could sense him wondering, as plain as anything, whether I knew of his crushing night at Forrester's. I met his strange purple gaze and nodded ever so slightly, and this time he was the one who coloured and looked at his feet. "'That's as may be,' Carno was saying. "'The plain fact is there's no vacancy just now. Well, "'What about Ronnie Marston's place?' "'Filled.' "'Already?' Footsteps approached the door, and I gathered that Carno's visitor was being shown out. The brother and I both stared at the floor as though we hadn't heard anything of any interest whatsoever. The door opened. "'Yes, filled,' said Carno, gesturing flamboyantly in my direction. "'By young Mr. Dando here. Stand up, lad. Sidney, Arthur. Arthur, Sidney.' The tall chap, Sidney, and I shook hands. He glowered at me in a cool and unfriendly manner, and glanced over at his brother with a slight shake of the head and a tiny shrug. "'Pleased to meet you, Sidney,' I said. "'Sid,' he said, summoning up some politeness out of his disappointment. "'Sid Chaplin. Come on, Charlie, let's go.' Now, it's probably useless for me to pretend that you won't have spotted the arrival just now of a key character into the story. I've kept him in the background as long as I can. After all, this is my story, not his, and his highly selective autobiography is available. One mention, that's all I get, one measly, solitary little mention.' should you wish to plough through the thing. In case you have more sense, however, let me now take a moment to bring you up to date with the careers of the two Chaplin brothers, Sidney and Charlie. They were half-brothers, actually, with the same mother but different fathers. Charlie's dad married their mother a few months after Sid was born and gave the baby lad his surname, and Charlie himself came along four years later. Charles Chaplin Sr. was a singer on the halls of middle-ranking fame on either side of the Atlantic who drank himself to death at 37. 
The boy's mother, Hannah, was a singer too, but her career petered out and she scratched a living as a seamstress in between periods in the Lambeth workhouse and, not to put too fine a point on it, the Cane Hill Asylum. Throughout their childhood, then, Sid, as the elder, was obliged to look out for young Charlie as they were bundled from one poor law school to another and for their mother too. At sixteen he went to sea, taking a post on a mailboat to the Cape, first getting an advance on his wages, which enabled Charlie and Hannah to take new lodgings in Kennington. By the time Sid had completed a handful of voyages, young Charlie had begun a career on the stage, first as one of the clog-dancing act Eight Lancashire Lads, even though he was a proper Cockney sparrow, and then as a boy actor in straight plays. Sid decided that he too wanted to tread the boards like his brother and his father and mother. Funnily enough, it was Charlie who gave Sid his first break. Charlie was appearing as a page boy in a touring Sherlock Holmes play and talked the management into taking Sid on in the role of a foreign aristocrat called Count von Stahlberg. When a second tour of the same show was mounted, Charlie retained his role, but Sid's went to someone else. Most likely the manager wanted to hire a nephew or something, so he took another posting as an assistant steward on a Cape mailboat. On this trip, he was persuaded to take part in a scratch entertainment, at which he did some comedy songs and a few impersonations, and became the talk of the ship. I imagine that, much like I did at the college smoker, he felt the power for the first time, and became intoxicated by it. After that, he was determined to make a career in comedy, and nothing else would do. Back in London once again, Sid abandoned his maritime career and managed to talk his way into the Wall Pink Company, appearing in their briefly notorious romp, Repairs. He was quite a hit in this messy house-fixing-up sketch, and was able to return the favour he owed Charlie, lending his younger brother the role of an incompetent plumber's mate. Walpink himself was a self-regarding braggart of an author and producer who confidently expected that Repairs was going to catapult him into the top rank alongside even the great Fred Carnot, but the reviews were discouraging, the bookings dwindled, and the rats began to abandon the sinking ship. Charlie quickly left to join another outfit called Casey's Circus, and then it just so happened that the governor turned up to run his eye over the ailing Walpink routine. He liked the look of the heavily mustachioed lead actor and offered Sid a job. Sid Chaplin's rise within the Fun Factory organisation since had been little short of meteoric, as they say, except meteors, by their nature, are hurtling downwards, aren't they? I've never quite understood that one. And within three months of joining Carno as a pantomimist, Sid was deemed ready to lead his own company, heading off to America as the drunken mummingbirds. Now he was back and making a play to get the governor to take his kid brother on, which was spoiled, inadvertently, as we've just seen, by me, your humble narrator. Oh well... How sad. Never mind. Now then, young fella, Carno said when we were alone, I'll put you into jailbirds. On trial, kind of style. Understand? And we'll see whether you've got it after all, shan't we? For the rest of that week, my feet barely touched the ground. The jailbirds company I was to be joining was on tour in the north, but as it happened, there was another company rehearsing jailbirds down in London, so I was dispatched to learn the ropes with them first. I didn't yet know all the ins and outs of Carno's organisation, but I quickly gathered that a supporting player in a Carno sketch was like a cog in a machine. A beautifully tuned machine, with immaculate timing, but a machine nonetheless. You couldn't get out of step with the other cogs, or the whole thing would grind to a halt. Also, the governor might need to remove a cog from one machine and transfer it to another at any moment, so there was no point in trying to build up, cut down or otherwise alter your part. 
So it was up to Walworth Road, to the Miracle, first thing every morning, to do a full day's rehearsal, and then over to the Fun Factory to catch one of the Carnot motorbuses up to the Paragon to be a super in Won't Detain Ya. I quickly got the hang of Jailbirds, which was a mostly physical routine without too much in the way of dialogue, set in a quarry where prisoners were breaking rocks and moving them about. There was an escape plan, which the guards thwart with a deal of tightly choreographed chasing around and bumping into things, and a bit of a free-for-all at the end, which was one of the governor's principal trademarks. It was hard work, though, and didn't leave me any free time at all that week, which was to be my first and last as a passenger aboard the Won't Detain You. Although I was excited about the chance I'd been given, I wouldn't have minded asking Tilly if she would like to repeat our afternoon tea together. As it was, though, the only real chance we had to speak at all the whole week was as we clung to one another on board the heaving mechanical ship, playing, you will recall, at being a married couple. Tilly was enjoying the game of playing her character to the full, and would whisper, "'What do you think America will be like? And will we still be able to get a nice cup of English tea?' On one occasion she breathed, "'How many children shall we have, do you think, darling?' into my ear, which affected my composure more than somewhat." On the last night I couldn't hold out any longer and whispered the news in her ear, my dramatic step up, from lowly super to probationary number five in a Carno touring company. It went down big, as they say in the States. No! she suddenly cried out loud, grabbing my arm and gaping at me in disbelief. This would have been a very gratifying reaction, except that we were in the middle of the sketch at the time, so it rather punctuated the action on stage, causing everyone, principals, supers and audience, to stare up at us. Tilly flushed and buried her face in my chest until the sketch picked up where it had left off. After a moment or two, I could feel her shaking with mirth. "'How awful! I'll be for it now,' she whispered. "'How about you, though? You're the next big thing!' "'I'll only be on trial, you know.' "'Oh, poo!' she breathed. "'Carno's got his eye on you. That's plain enough.' Back at the fun factory, where all the various companies gathered at the end of the evening to collect their pay, Tilly abandoned her giggling chums and stood with me. She slipped her arm under mine, pulled me to her in a rather proprietorial fashion, and beamed. I felt like the king of the world. Then I noticed all the other supers looking squintways at me. They all seemed to be pretty much seething. Chaps who'd been warming up to me and generally giving me the time of day were now scowling in a surly fashion. A suspicion began to dawn. "'Tilly,' I whispered, "'you didn't tell anyone that I'm leaving, did you?' "'Oh, I may have mentioned it here and there,' she twinkled. The rumour had spread like wildfire, leaping from dry stick to dry stick and consuming them all in the red heat of its jealous flames. I didn't realise then, of course, that no super had ever been given a featured part in a Carno sketch. Ever. It had never happened before. Tilly stayed close by my side, basking in the glow she herself had created around me, smiling and waving at all the lesser mortals. One of the fellows who'd been painting the ship alongside me, who'd been rather snooty that whole time, sidled over to offer his heartfelt congratulations. "'You will mention my name to Mr Carnot, won't you, if you get the chance?' he said. And I'm sure I would have done as well if he'd ever deigned to tell me what it was. Freddy Carnot Jr. arrived, as before, to set up his counting tables, and such was my newfound status that the mob parted deferentially to allow me and Tilly to go first. We strolled slowly forwards, rather like royalty, and the riffraff bowed their heads and fell in line behind us. Junior had his ledger open ready, and looked up to see me standing before him. "'Arthur Dando,' I said. "'I know,' Freddy said curtly, and I could tell right away he wasn't all that pleased to see me. "'I know who you are. Everybody knows who you are. You're the super the governor's sending up to take Ronnie Marston's place.' 
I grinned modestly, I hoped, but said nothing, and we eyed one another. "'Do you know how long I've been on at my father to give me a go?' Freddy demanded. "'Do you?' I didn't, and he didn't tell me, but I imagined it was quite a while, or he'd hardly be banging on about it. I thought when that whole Ronnie Marston business happened, that was it. It was obvious. That would just be the perfect start for me. I as good as begged him, my own father, and he said he'd think about it. Oh, he was still thinking about it. Well, maybe, or you never know, and then boom, out of the blue, here's you. I'll tell you, I'm just about ready to pack this lot in. I am, straight. I'll mention your name if you like, I offered, then bit my tongue. His face hardened. You do that, he said, and slapped my money for the week into my hand, scratching my name out of his ledger with what I thought was unnecessary violence. Alf Reeves was hovering nearby, having bustled over from the Enterprise. It turned out he was waiting for me, and he took my arm and led me outside for a private word. "'You mustn't mind Freddy, you know, Arthur,' he said. "'He's not a bad fellow when you get to know him. "'He's as sorry as anyone about poor Ronnie, "'even though it sounds like he's only thinking of himself.' "'There it was again. Poor Ronnie.' "'Whatever was it that happened to?' I began, "'but Reeves thumped me cheerily in the chest. "'So, it seems like the Governor had plans for you after all, eh? "'Capital! Delighted!' "'He pumped my hand enthusiastically. "'Now it's Bolton, isn't it? Yeah.' and it's a half week, so most of them will be down tomorrow for a couple of days, loved ones, so on, and so you can go back up with them on Tuesday. They've been using a sub since, well, you know, but he's needed elsewhere, so you'll be stepping straight in. Euston Station, 10 o'clock train, look out for Frank O'Neill, he's company managing. Good luck! And with that he was off, with a hundred other things to take care of, no doubt, and while I was processing that information, Tilly came out, skipped over to me and stood very close. I could smell her perfume feel the weight of her as she leaned on my arm and pressed herself against me. "'Now then, Arthur Dando,' she said softly, "'when you're a big success and can have any girl you want—' "'Now there was a distracting idea. "'You won't forget about me, will you?' "'Um, forget you? "'Forget you? I should say not.' She smiled, a dazzling smile, and then suddenly pulled herself up on her tiptoes and kissed me quickly on the lips. Then off she went, skipping back inside to join her pals. I should have gone back in, but I was embarrassed— I should have found her and asked if she would like to spend the following afternoon together, but I was afraid that if I went back in, all conversation would cease instantly and two hundred pairs of eyes and ears would track my every move, and nobody does their best courting under those conditions, do they? So I made my way home and lay awake all night thinking about that kiss. <laughs> Mm-hmm.